What's up, ODs and eyewear lovers? We're talking the latest trends in tech and eye care. So sit back, relax, and defocus. Welcome, everybody. This week, we've got exciting new guests for the Defocus podcast. I'm here with Daryl, as always. And then we've got Dr. Whitney Hauser, who's doing some exciting new things um, with her new venture, Dry Eye Coach. Dr. Hauser, welcome, and thank, thank you so you much for, for coming invitation. on the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself All and right. what you're doing All in right. optometry. I um, have been practicing for close to 15 years now, and I started primarily in an ophthalmology practice, and I did a lot of cataract and LASIK pre- and post-ops, as well as dry eye care, and I did that for about 10 years. And then I decided um, I wanted to do something different, do something entirely novel to what I'd been doing, so I decided to leave the comfortable place I was was in private practice ophthalmology and begin working at Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, I started out at SCO as a faculty member and got a unique opportunity along with Dr. Alan Cabot to start an ocular surface disease clinic uh, at SCO that was called Tearwell. And Tearwell Advanced Dry Treatment Center has been rolling for almost three years now, and we've had a lot of uh, success both, you know, in terms of academics as well as uh, treating our patients clinically. And what I found was that there was a greater need than we could even serve at Tierwell in terms of education for current practitioners. So that made me think, you know what, how can we bring education to a large number of people? So naturally bringing it to them through the internet just seemed like an appropriate and a great access point. So I've designed a new website called dryeyecoach.com and we'll be launching later this fall. It's going to be a strongly video-driven website. So there'll be short videos of two to three minutes from a lot of, you know, key opinion leaders that, you know, ODs are familiar with. It'll be key opinion leaders both in optometry and in ophthalmology, but the, the website will be really for anyone who treats ocular surface disease, whether you're a doctor or whether you're perhaps a technician. So we're going to have a lot of great information on there and look to kind of have that site evolve as time goes on. So how many coaches are a part of the dry eye coach movement? There are around 10 or 11 coaches. Uh, and th- those coaches will probably alternate and rotate as time goes on because, you know, there are a lot of them are my friends and I'm just sort of falling on their mercy to ask them to help me uh, with the project. But we have uh, Dr. Paul Carpecki. Um, we have Dr. Leslie O'Dell, Dr. Alan Cabot in terms of optometry, Scott Schachter, uh, Bridget Chen Lee, and Augustin Gonzalez. And then in ophthalmology, we have Drs. Laura Perryman, Mark Milner, Gary Wirtz, and Liz Yu. So, you know, a lot of names that are synonymous with ocular surface disease and will be providing information to our attendees and visitors. So when working on dry eye coach, what were some of the things that you found the general eye care practitioner was a bit weak on when it comes well, to ocular you surface know, disease? I absolutely uh, dive headfirst into ocular surfaces. I get passionate about it. I get pa- passionate about the patient base, about the testing, the diagnostics, the advanced treatments and all of that. And a lot of times when something is your passion, you assume that other people share, at least in part, that same level of enthusiasm that you do. And that's exactly the reason that I developed Dry Coach was when I was out giving lectures and doing workshops. You know, I realized that a lot of my colleagues, you know, 
even if they had a bit of interest in ocular surface disease, really just didn't even have the most basic skills in terms of diagnosis and treatment. So, you know, the, the website's going to have a lot of really basic information, so it won't be all really advanced. You know, even things like put the fluorescein in and leave it for two to three minutes before looking at the cornea. You know, you miss so much from diving right in once the fluorescein's instilled that you don't even see a lot of SPK. So there will be some really, you know, easy basic tips as well as some more advanced things, just depending on the visitor's interest level. Speaking of dyes, so we've got the luxury of having you on here. And I love to pick your brain a little bit about your personal dry eye philosophy. Do you tend to use fluorescein staining more, lysamine staining more? And what's your go-to diagnostic for dry? So first thing in terms of dyes, I use both fluorescein and lysamine. And, you know, from a, I like to think of it from a private practitioner standpoint, because now I work in an academic setting where time is not always of the essence. Time is a luxury we tend to have in academia. But I always, you know, think back to those days in a busy private practice. And there's really time for both. And I utilize both. I typically will put lysamine green in first because it really highlights conjunctival staining that a lot of times can be missed by fluorescein alone. And I also use lysamine to look at the line of marks. So you pull the lower lid down and you see that little fine green line that demarcates the inside of the lid from the outside of the lid. And that mucocutaneous junction is really important when you're looking at evaporative dryness because we can see that line shift anteriorly as the disease process worsens. So naturally, the line should be occurring posterior to the meibomian glands. As the disease progresses, it will transect or go anterior to the glands, and you know that lysamine green is staining dead or devitalized cells. So if those cells are dead, and it's almost like a keratinized or or calcified, almost like a calloused area over the glands, you can well imagine that that meibum that should be free-flowing upon each blink is just not ever going to make it to the ocular surface. So I utilize that, and as much as I just took the time to tell you about it, really to instill it and take a look, takes no time at all. Uh, I also do use fluorescein. I use fluorescein for my tear breakup, but the way I like to do it, as I mentioned before, is put the dye in, wait a minute or two. If you need to turn around and document something, talk to the patient about case history for a minute, you can do that and not waste time. But then Then take a look and see what you may otherwise be missing. The other thing I like to do is use something called a Ratin 12 filter, which really highlights the fluorescein and makes it really sharp and kind of pop. Dr. Hauser, you bring up some great points in regards to the lysamine green. In addition to the dyes, are you also using the tear lab as well as inflammadry in your practice? I do use both of those. Tear lab offers, in terms of osmolarity, really the one physiological objective marker that we have in terms of dryness. And osmolarity has been very, very tightly tied to ocular surface disease. So I think that's a very reliable test to use. Now, I will admit, when I first started using Tear Lab, I struggled like a lot of practitioners do with the numbers that I was getting and what does that mean to me? What does that mean to the patient? But really, it's a it's a very highly sensitive diagnostic tool. And anything you know that's greater than 308 in terms of milliosmoles per liter is going to indicate dry eye. Then there's the inner eye difference. So if there's an eight milliosmol difference between the two eyes, that's also an indicator. 
historically, I would look at two eyes and if one of them was normal, but one of them was abnormal, I just kind of want to throw my hands up and say, well, what does that mean? You know, that doesn't feel like it's reading correctly. But indeed, the difference between those two was actually telling me something. In Flamadry, we use that as well. Uh, and I think that's highly uh, valuable in terms of identifying MMP9 in the tear film. Now, granted, identification of MMP9 and that inflammation doesn't necessarily tell you what it's due to. Is it due to caseca? Is it due to, you know, blepharitis or something like that? But it does indicate there's a level of inflammation. And it's important to quell that inflammation because so much of dry, if not, you know, almost all of it has an inflammatory component. You know, I love the information that Inflamadry provides. However, I always have problems with reading the results. Am I the only one or do you feel that same way? <laughs> well, considering my age, presbyopia is not my friend, <laughs> especially when you're reading the Inflamadry. So any positive pink is considered a positive, even no matter how faint it is. Unfortunately, in its current, you know, its current version, it doesn't really uh, quantify the amount of inflammation, uh, but it does qualify it. So you do know if you have it. So a faint pink line would indicate it, but I do admit I have to sometimes throw on my readers or get a student to look at it for me. If you were speaking with a doctor's office and they were kind of looking at investing in tear lab or Inflamadry, do you have a, a certain opinion about which one to go with or do you well, think they really I mean, need to get both? You no, know, they don't do the same thing. So you're not comparing apples to apples diagnostically. Do you know what I mean? So if you had two pieces that basically mm -hmm. did the same thing, perhaps I could narrow it down a little bit better. When you think of it in terms of, uh, you know, what do you get for your investment? I believe that you can get a tier lab unit at no cost and just buy cards. The cards then can be billed to insurance based on the diagnosis. So if you have the proper diagnosis code, you should be able to bill that out. Now, certainly, you're not going to be terribly profitable in terms of sh in the short term on either test on inflammadry or on tear osmolarity. However, the real opportunity for profitability for the practice comes from proper diagnosis, ultimately proper treatment, and that leads to annuity of the patient. And the patient continues to return to your office because you've made that right diagnosis that leads to some level of improvement in their dry eye. The big thing on the market right now really seems to be my mammography imaging. Tell me about your experience with uh, mybomian gland imaging sure. and treatment You know, systems. whether you use a transilluminator and look at the glands, you know, that basically, or use a static mybography like the Keratograph 5M or dynamic uh, mybography imaging like through the Liposcan or LipaView 2, all of them have certain levels of quality. And really any of them can give the doctor an image of what the glands look like, which is really critical to understanding how much you can improve your patient's condition and what sort of their prognosis with their evaporative dryness is. Now, certainly you can have different levels of that. And I often liken it to imaging that we would have in terms of radiology. So if you think of using your transluminator as an x-ray versus using static mybography as a CT, or dynamic mybography like an MRI, you just get different levels of sharpness, crispness, and clarity. So all of those are opportunities to get a better image for the doctor, but it also helps in patient education. 
Because ultimately what a lot of our patients say when we're done, you know, with our entire evaluation is they often say, you know, you just told me something no one has ever told me about my dry eye. And Dr. Hauser, that's the type of stuff that will keep a patient loyal to the practice. I mean, when you can come in, examine the eyes and tell them something that no one else has, they're definitely going to stick with you and, you know, not venture off to another optometrist or even play around with maybe some type of telemedicine of some sort. Now, are you seeing a shift in the type of patients in your office? I know being a millennial, I tend to spend quite a bit of time on, you know, my uh, iPhone, my MacBook, you know, stuff of that nature. Are you seeing more millennials or is it still your typical 40 year old female? Um, what are you seeing in your office? Right. Yeah. You hit on a really, really good point, Daryl, because, you know, our typical patient is, you know, a f- as you mentioned, a female over the age of 40, perhaps taking a couple of medications, maybe perhaps uh, perimenopausal to menopausal, and maybe even throw in a little bit of autoimmune disease. And then you've hit that perfect storm of that dry patient in your practice. But a lot of us who see a lot of dry patients are noticing trends that are shifting towards a younger and younger demographic. And no longer do men seem to be almost immune to dryness. We're seeing more men in our practices as well. So I think you're exactly spot on to say that there is a big change uh, in dryness. Right now, I think it's around, it's projected it's around 30 million Americans suffer in some form or fashion from dry conditions. And I think we're only going to see those numbers continue to uh, increase, which is kind of, you know, a stark contrast to glaucoma, whereas in glaucoma, it's approximately 3 million Americans have glaucoma. And, you know, from an optometric perspective, we feel like that number should be so much higher. Uh, And really the opportunity is to treat dry eye disease because it's so underdiagnosed. So do you find yourself having any problems with actually convincing millennials to treat the dry eyes or is it pretty straightforward and they comply? You know, I don't think it's going to be as difficult to convince the millennials. Once you say, how long, how long do you sit on your computer, your laptop, your iPhone, your Apple watch, your whatever, you know, immediately they're going to have a guilty look on their face. You know, they're going to know that they spend a lot of time on screens because the, the millennials are natives to digital devices. You know, they were born using a lot of these devices. So they understand that when you say, well, you don't blink as often or as completely when you use those devices and kind of explain the chain reaction that that causes. I think a lot of them are really going to get it. And the fun thing is, is that in fact, there are a lot of things, apps uh, that they can use to help trigger blink mechanisms. So, you know, if we kind of bring it into their realm, I think they'll be very receptive. As an industry, I mean, what do you think we're not doing that we could do a lot better? Because there seems to be such a mismatch between how many Americans we know have dry eye versus how many Americans are successfully well, treated dry for dry eye. Is classically considered a nuisance condition. So, you know, if you just even take the name alone, it sounds like it's not a real problem. You know, it sounds like you have dryness here, here's your artificial tear. And I think 97% of patients who leave offices leave with artificial tears, whereas 82% of them wish they had better options. So, you know, it's also something that rarely causes significant vision loss. So if the doctor's not worried that the patient's going to take a deleterious turn and lose vision, 
you know, a lot of times they may say, well, you know, here's your tears, come back to see me next year. And it's just easy to ignore. But what we're seeing is there's a lot of opportunities to satisfy that patient population with new technologies. I mean, for years and years, we just didn't have good options, you know, and now that we have options like the tear science technology, like new medications coming out, uh, like Zydra, we have a lot of new tools at our disposal that we didn't have before. So if you think about it, like, you know, AMD, when you had AMD before you had anti-VEGF therapies, you just said, well, I'm sorry, we can identify your problem, but we really don't have great options for you. So I think as we have more options, people are going to take it more seriously. I want to pick your brain a little bit sure. about the tear science uh, lipoflow device and your clinical experience. How often do patients feel a difference at that, you know, four to six week follow-up visit after right. they've had well, the Well, at the done? risk of giving you numbers that sound too good to be true, we've done approximately a hundred uh, of those procedures. And I would tell you of the ones that I've done, I've had zero patients tell me they wish they hadn't done it. Uh, and the reason for that is even though there's varying degrees of uh, improvement with each patient. In the beginning, prior to doing the procedure, I have a very pointed conversation with them about the disease process, the chronic progressive nature of it, that we have no magic bullets, that this is there to help as a tool. It's not there to cure. And with all that information going in armed with that, their level of expectation is set appropriately. So they go in understanding, I'm going to get benefit from this, but it's not going to make me a 20-year-old with perfect tear film. And it tends to really pay off. So as I said, you know, I'd consider our success rate to be virtually 100%. But that, again, is because of where the expectations are set. And it also, in, in fact, has a lot to do with the diagnostics that we do beforehand. While 86% of dryness is evaporative in nature, you know, I don't necessarily think that I want to do the, the procedure on all of my evaporative patients, but a fair number of them would be very successful. Anecdotally, I mean, do you feel like in your experience that patients that have mixed mechanism dry respond better to something like restasis? after they do a lipoflow treatment for evaporative dry eye? A lot of my patients come in having already tried Restasis or are actively on Restasis. You know, considering the amount of time it takes for Restasis to reach its maximum effect, and I won't say to work. A lot of my colleagues say it takes three months, six months to work, which is sort of inaccurate in that Restasis starts working immediately. It just doesn't take its full therapeutic effect for three to six months. So with that in mind, you know, I think going ahead and doing them concurrently would make sense because that inflammatory nature that affects both an evaporative and an aqueous deficient. And as you mentioned with mixed mechanism, it just makes sense to go ahead and decrease that inflammation. Um, so yeah, I don't necessarily think I'd pick one over the other, nor would I pick one earlier than the other. Um, but to go ahead and do them concurrently would make sense to me. Speaking of restasis, what's your typical protocol? I typically like to start off with a steroid like Lodomax uh, maybe four times a day for a few weeks, then taper it down. And uh, once I start the taper of the steroid, I implement the restasis. What's your typical protocol, Dr. Hauser? Right. I would agree. I do tend to jumpstart with some sort of mild steroid, oftentimes Lodomax, just because of the low level or low likelihood of having an IOP spike, though not zero 
likelihood of having an IOP spike. Uh, and I think that tends to help. Also, just cautioning the patient about their expectations, just like I mentioned with Lipiflow, will oftentimes help as well. So, you know, between those two things, it tends to work. I oftentimes, in terms of the Lodamax, do it twice a day for two weeks, then once a day for two weeks. And by then, it's usually a pretty soft, soft landing into the restasis. I'll also talk to them about perhaps using an artificial tear prior to instilling the restasis, maybe chilling it if they're experiencing burning. Um, but that usually makes makes a big difference. I think it's only about 10% of patients on restasis find it to burn. So I take it that you're recommending a preservative-free artificial tear. Do you ever recommend a preservative tear at some point in time during treatment? Uh, yes. Yeah, typically uh, for these patients, although based on their convenience, it may be something that's preserved. You know, sometimes I'll tell people, use non-preserved tears when you're at home because it's easier and for like particularly my female patients if you're out and about and you want to be able to throw something in your handbag a lot of times a preserved tear might be more convenient. So Dr. Hauser there are so many options when it comes to choosing artificial tears. I get it you know if it's evaporative dry eye you use a certain type of artificial tear. If it's aqueous deficiency then I know we use a certain type of artificial tear. What do you like? Uh, What's you know, your go-to? I really like what the patient likes. And a lot of my patients come in and they say they love the one in the green bottle, you know, and I know we're going with, you know, uh, maybe refresh shop tea or something like that. Or they come in saying, I hate this one. So we kind of tend to tailor it based on what the patients ha- have been using because the patients are not going to come in without having used tears. And they a lot of times will have either preferences right. uh, one direction or another. So, but, you know, in, in my experience, I've used everything from, you know, the Sustain products and the Octave products to retain MGD and the other retain family members. Uh, we've used Oasis. I've used Theratiers, you know, really just across the board, different tiers that have worked really well. So another one I want to pick your brain on mm-hmm. is nutritional supplement. Are there specific nutritional factors that you want your dry eye patients uh, taking? I will tell you. You know, for quite some time, I was very loyal to using Nordic Naturals, the uh, Pro Omega Nordic Naturals. And I liked them because in the United States, we have really no standards when it comes to supplements. But in Europe, they do. And Nordic Naturals goes by the European standards for supplements. So I liked that, that I felt like you're getting a quality product. It also didn't have a fishy taste afterwards. Uh, And I just really liked, again, the quality of what I was getting. It also comes in a liquid version, which is really nice for Sjogren's patients because sometimes they have difficulty swallowing those big capsules and that helps. Now, what I've learned in the last year or so is I've done some research on a product called HydroEye. HydroEye contains both an amount of omega-3 as well as omega-6. Now, omega-6 in the United States tends to get sort of a bad rap because it comes a lot of times from processed foods and meats, but the omega-6 in HydroEye comes from black currant seed oil, so it's a plant-based omega-6 and tends to actually provide a greater uh, degree of uh, anti-inflammatory opportunities. And several studies have actually backed that up. There was a study that was published in Corny in 2012 by John Shepard out of Virginia, as well as my colleague, Walt Whitley. And it looked at 38 postmenopausal women, and it found that there was an improvement in OSDI, in ocular smoothness, and two uh, inflammatory markers from taking this particular product. 
studies have also shown an improvement in Sjogren's patients as well as contact lens comfort. So when you just strictly look at the science of it, you know, we get kind of programmed to think omega-3, 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 but there's actually, you know, been shown benefit through research that omega-6 in the right form can cause or can give an improvement in ocular comfort to our patients. Do you prescribe turmeric? And if so, what amount of it? Because that's a frequent question. No, I can't say that I do. In terms of whole food, I really just stick with a balanced diet, looking for our fatty cold water fishes, but making sure that they're hopefully from a more organic source or wild source versus something farm-raised. In terms of things specific to turmeric, I don't, but I think that there is still some value in that. I don't disregard that. Again, I find whole nutrition really to be ideal and supplements to be just what the name implies, to work as a supplement to your, your whole diet. So switching gears a little little bit i always love to ask all the women optometrists especially the ones that specialize in interior segment or dry eyes um what's the best way to treat women that wear extensive makeup you know i'm talking like caked on their face what do you recommend the great that's and that happens certainly the great advantage that i have uh over some of my colleagues is being a woman and not only being a woman, but being a woman that wears makeup. And in fact, you will probably never see me even go to the grocery store without makeup on. I'm from the South. That's just how we do it. And, um, you know, I can at least have a really frank conversation with them. And the way I do that is by anterior segment photography. Once I take a photo of their eye with all of that makeup on, it really naturally is going to magnify it and make a greater impression on them. A lot of times I'll also then sort of draw their attention to where they're applying things like their eyeliner in particular, because they will a lot of times be at what in cosmetics is known as the waterline. And the waterline is really application at the meibomian glands. And to get that tight eyeline look that really looks sharp, honestly, uh, a lot of times, you know, they're going to be applying where we don't want them to be applying. So I'll then kind of coach them and say, look, if we can at least move out towards the lash line and get away from where the meibomian glands are, it may be greater benefit to you in the long run because of the susceptibility to inflammation. And part of it, some people are never going to change. So as a doctor, you definitely walk a fine line between upsetting the patient and, you know, retaining them or just kind of giving them educational points. So it may be something that is a tiered level of education, you know, kind of knock on the door a little bit, have an initial conversation and then kind of follow up at each visit. So tell me more about the products that you're using and also the thought process behind the choice that you decide to go with. Uh, You know, I use a lot of different products and it sort of depends on what the problem is. So, you know, certainly if the patient has Demodex, I tend to lean, uh, lean on Claridex pretty strongly. I'm a big proponent of Avanova. You know, when I initially was introduced to Avanova, Nova, I really kind of almost rolled my eyes because I thought, well, what is this going to do? I mean, I have patients coming in who will buy that by the case. So it's really remarkable the response that my patients have had to the product, and I think it works really well. Uh, I also use something called uh, iLast. iLast comes in two versions, a clean and care version. The care version is one of my favorites. It just is really soothing to the eye. It has retinal palmitate in it and hyaluronic acid. So it has sort of a plumping effect. So if you have fine lines and wrinkles, it also tends to alleviate some of those as sort of sort of a secondary endpoint, if you will, to hydrating the tissue around the eyes. Well, I know the ladies love that. 
<laughs> I know, right? What's not to love? I've got some gentlemen that think it's pretty good too. So well, I'm getting up there in age, so I might need to use some of that myself. My wife would probably like that. I know she's always telling me to use certain things to make sure that my skin looks beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's preventative medicine, Daryl. Preventative medicine. <laughs> So going backwards a little bit to the Tearwell uh-huh. Clinic that you helped establish at SEO, how did you guys get the marketing out to really establish that clinic um, successfully? You know, having, again, worked in LASIK uh, surgery for so many years, I really sort of leaned on that, uh, at least from my contribution. Certainly, it was an entirely group effort uh, for our marketing. We sat down and had focus groups to develop a logo. We went through a branding company to develop that logo. And then ultimately, our publications department did a fantastic job of, you know, I'd come up with ideas and their execution of that was just absolutely perfect. So, you know, it was a, it was a, very big group effort in that. But again, for my portion of it, you know, LASIK centers are very good at touching their patients and getting information packets out to them. And what we would do is get an information packet from a LASIK uh, center and then, you know, deconstruct it and then rebuild it as a dry eye packet. And we have those that get sent out to all of our new patients to introduce them to Tearwell. What would you recommend to, you know, the average private practice owner digitally, how can they get a better dry? That's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of basic things that you can do like SEO, but SEO in terms of or search engine optimization with dry eye is pretty tough because, you know, it's a pretty well established right now and you have companies that come in and they can make a bigger footprint than you can. So, you know, I'll tell you social media is really the way to go. To have an active and consistent social media presence is something that very few practices do. Uh, I'm on Twitter and I'm on, you know, Facebook and, you know, LinkedIn and all of those things, but you can really reach out, you know, either across the world or in your own backyard with the use of social media. And that's seems so simple. But the thing is, is that so many practices open accounts and then don't maintain them. And they don't have an employee that's actually designated that that's what they do and that they should post, you know, four or five times a day. And without, you know, posting regularly and giving information that's worth, you know, sharing, then you're not going to really make that footprint. So, I think social media offers the best opportunity if it's executed appropriately. Oh, man, Dr. Hauser, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's very important to execute properly. And that revolves around content like you uh, stated. I mean, content is king. It's no doubt about it. Actually, Dr. Lyerly and I, we create content for social media platforms for optometrists. And the one thing that we do prior to setting up an account is we get to know the optometrist a little bit better. Um, We get to fill out their personality and we incorporate their personality into their social media platform. That way it's not just, okay, we're selling this, we're selling that. Um, You know, prime example, we have one client that is big into cycling. I mean, she loves cycling. That's her life. So, you know, we may incorporate some quotes when it comes to cycling or uh, we will have pictures of her doing, you know, certain types of races and It has helped to increase her sales in regards to eyewear simply because her clients, her patients see on her social media the lifestyle that she's living and they look at her as a reliable source and influencer in the realm that she deals with when it comes to cycling. That's incredibly important because, you know, what a lot of practices will do is they'll want to say we're having a sale or 
whatever. And that's not a real call to action to, to, um, patients, you know, patients are looking for things that are fun, who are interesting, you know, some acute quote, a recipe, a something, and then you can throw your sale in, but you can't just do self-promotion because self-promotion gets ignored. I also think it's tougher doctors, like they'll start out really active, but growing social media takes it does. a long time. You won't go right in and no. immediately get followers. You could be going for months before you hit 20 and then suddenly you'll get 50 right. like the next day. So I think it's the how slow social media right. goes. It does. It does. People. I mean, everyone likes immediate return on investment and you know doctors have very short attention spans when it comes to things like that and you're exactly right it takes a lot of time and diligence to build that and it's just like having a garden I mean you can't put the seeds in walk away and think well I didn't get what I wanted out of it you've got to really nurture it and get it to get it to grow the way you want it to. You know, one of the problems that I notice is that optometrists don't talk about social media in the exam lane. I mean, how do you expect for people to follow you and engage you on social media if you don't actually tell your patients about it? I mean, we have to have this conversation in the exam lane or you have to have your staff talk about it as well. I mean, social media is the new word of mouth. If you're not talking about it in your exam lane, you're missing a great opportunity outside of the uh, office. Exactly. Or at least some sort of you know, internal marketing within the office to let patients know just visually that they are. Or, you know, what I find surprising a lot of times is that they don't collect even, the, you know, when they're collecting demographic information, you know, a lot of them will just neglect to even get email addresses from their patients, even just sort of basic ways to communicate and do it pretty inexpensively. So unless the patient decides to opt out of sharing that, if you got the email, you could directly market to them. And, and certainly you don't want to inundate your patients with marketing because that gets ignored pretty well too, but you could at least, you know, send sort of an, you know, like a introduction saying here I'm on social media and they may be more receptive saying that gives them the opportunity to choose to connect with you than sort of being force fed that connection. Well, hooking back onto what you said about nurturing with your role as a clinical instructor, I mean, what do you see your students really facing as a big challenge in their future career coming out as a practicing optometrist well, in the know, next few years? Well, you know, a lot of them, you know, since we have a class of roughly 130 students, and then that's just Southern College of Optometry, and there's going to be emerging, you know, uh, students from all across the United States. What their greatest challenge is how to differentiate themselves from their fellow graduates, whether it's their fellow alumni from their school or just across the country. And how you can do that, in my opinion, while residencies certainly will make someone stand out, I think only about 10 to 15 percent of graduates will elect to do residencies. So how else can you do that is by having something that you can op have an opportunity to specialize in or special interest. And for me, you know, it's a no brainer that dry eye is the best way to do that. And certainly I have, you know, a vested interest in that. But at the same time, I hear from across the country, doctors that want to introduce, quote, dry eye centers of excellence to their practice, but perhaps it's not their area of interest. And so they're always looking for associates to come in and do that. Uh, and that's a great way for a young doctor to come in and say, hey, I've been at Tierwell or I've done this at my school and here's what I know about dry eye. And these doctors, you know, give full reign to somebody that has that interest and that skill set. Would you say it'd be key for a hiring doctor to invest in a lot of 
technology resources though too in in establishing a center it's almost like you have to invest so much in the tech on the front end to see the returns on that right. dry center well, you know, payback. You can do things incrementally or you can go all in. You know, all in will have a greater capital outlay, um, but may also provide, you know, greater opportunity for revenue if done aggressively. And we, like we talked about nurturing, you can't just buy the equipment and then hope that, you know, people then use it. You know, it won't always work that way. In fact, it rarely does. And that's what, you know, has happened with a lot of these pieces of equipment is that they get bought um, in a surgical practice, hoping that the optometrist will then use them. uh, And that's not what happens. So you can, again, do it kind of incrementally. You can have something that uh, looks at glands. You can use dyes. You can use zone quick to assess uh, tear volume. You can use something like like a Blefex which is something that's a, a minimal investment but can be paid off in as few as 10, um, 10 uses and, you know, start there. Or you can go all in and get a lip of scan and a lip of flow and all of that. Um, there's really no wrong way to do it. The only wrong way to do it is not committing to what you're doing. So switching gears here a little bit, I want to know what are your thoughts on this new drug out known as Zydra? How are you using it in your office? I had a great opportunity um, to get some early samples of Zydra and have been writing it for about almost two months now. And, you know, it's unique because Zydra's indication from the FDA is for the signs and symptoms of dry disease, which is a bit different than really any other drug that's on the market. And it's a unique thing because it really addresses the fact that Um, patients can have symptomatology of dry disease without having the greatest significance of signs. But then on the flip side, sometimes they have much more um, higher magnitude of signs than we do symptoms. So either way, this drug gives an opportunity for treatment. You know, it does have some mild side effects that patients have noticed and that they noticed in safety studies, um, which are a little bit of a funny taste called dyskusia, a little bit of blurred vision, which tends to be transient but can um, be noticed by patients and a little bit of uh, burning sometimes. So that's experienced in less than 15% of all the patients uh, that have been through studies with Zydra. And in my clinical experience, a lot of my patients have felt better. I've only had one patient that said, you know, this really isn't for me. I'm going to try something different. Uh, And we're still in the very early stages, though. A lot of them have only been on it for anywhere between two to, say, eight weeks. And so they're still kind of really determining what we can do with it. I kind of liken Zyder to having a new car. You know, in the beginning, you sort of kind of go easy out of the driveway because you're not sure what you've got going. And, you know, you're a little nervous about the, you know, backing up and things like that. And then once you get a certain level of comfort, you just tend to want to see what it'll do, how fast it'll go and how quick it'll corner. And I found that with Zydra, you know, I started off really conservative with writing my scripts. I sort of cherry picked my mild to moderate patients to see how well they would uh, fare with it. And now I'm getting much more aggressive and putting in my Sjogren's patients on it. And so far, so good. You know, I'm really optimistic. Uh, but again, there's a lot we still don't know. So how are you using Zydra with Restasis? Are you combining both of the medications? Uh, you know, it's really a case by case basis, to be honest. Uh, I really, you know, I haven't, I don't have any rules of thumb yet when it comes to Zydra. Um, but I don't feel like I need to jumpstart a steroid with it, like we talked about earlier, which is a nice advantage, you know, from, 
an exposure to potential uh, preservatives for the patient, from a cost perspective for the patient, from the you know the side effects that can come from steroids. So there's a lot of good reasons that I don't you know I'm happy I don't have to use that steroid. Um, but what I'm going to do in terms of other medications, I haven't really decided yet. So with innovations in dry eye treatment and testing, where do you see dry eyes 15 years from now? Uh, you know that's a really that's a really tough question. It really is because if you'd asked me 10 years ago if we would be sitting here doing what we're doing now, which is dedicating like 30 minutes to the topic, I probably at the time would have thought there's no way that's possible. You know, and it has taken such a dramatic 180 turn in the last decade that I really think that we're going to see an a real surge in technology. I think we're going to continue to see a surge in uh, pharmaceuticals because, you know, there's a saying that says high tides raise all boats. And I think that's what we're going to see. You know, I, I like seeing that level of competition between the pharmaceutical companies. It's just saying, let's bring our game to the next level and really prioritize these patients. And I think they see opportunity there to treat the patients just as much as we do. So, you know, I think it's just really honestly going to continue to grow. And I think the unique thing about dry eye care is that it offers practice management opportunities for practices that a lot of other disease processes do not because it has a lot of elective procedures. Whereas when you're treating glaucoma and you're doing an other, other disease processes in the medical model, there's limitations to what you can bill based on, you know, um, testing, things like that. You know, your OCT is only valued at a certain amount and so forth. And that's what your patient's going to pay. And that's what their insurance dictates and so forth. But with dry disease, and we certainly play within the bounds of, of coding and billing and a lot of those, you know, constraints and guardrails, but we still have a lot of opportunities when it comes to uh, elective procedures, which is entirely unique to dry disease. Do you see a future where someone really could exist on a pure medical model, just dry eye, and, and that's their whole business? I think right now, honestly, is the perfect time to start that. You know, because while there's a lot of people talking dry eye everywhere, there's very few people that are executing at a really high level. So to be in a community, you know, when we first opened Tierwell, you know, we were inundated with patients because they were looking for something new. They were looking for a new opportunity. And I think if you find the right market and you really know your stuff and you have a lot of, you know, options and not just have one treatment where you're basically funneling all your patients to one treatment, but have some diversity in terms of treatment and care. I think there is a unique opportunity for that. Now, granted, there might be something where you could have, you know, I won't say a mobile unit, but you could go through multiple practices, perhaps affiliate with a rheumatology office, you know, think outside the box in terms of just a standalone, quote, dry center that might really, you know, be an opportunity. Wow, Dr. Houser, you've truly blown my mind this entire interview. I mean, I have a whole new perspective in regards to dry eyes. Um, those students at SEO are extremely lucky. Um, for us that are not at SEO, what's the best way for us to get in touch with you um, in regards to the dry eye coach? And just also, what are your social media handles? 
I would welcome everyone to go on to dryeyecoach.com. You can go on there now while the website isn't open just yet. It does have an opportunity for you to subscribe. We have several hundred subscribers already, and that will let you know when we launch, and you can be um, available for e-blasts and things like that just to sort of stay in the know with innovative and current technologies and stay on trend with what's happening in dry eye disease. So I'd encourage everyone to do that. Uh, additionally, you can follow Dry Eye Coach on Twitter at Dry Eye Coach 2. And I encourage you to follow us there. I am Dr. Whitney Hauser. So my handle on Twitter is at D R W H A U S C R. And I'm on LinkedIn, and we have a lot of dry eye groups through my LinkedIn account. So, you know, anywhere in social media, I encourage you to connect, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. As we go into 2017, we're planning on having some live dry coach programs throughout the United States. At least that is our goal. And at those programs, you would be able to be certified by the coaches in terms of CE opportunities as well as workshop. Now, those CEs will hopefully be sort of a rapid fire type thing, not your conventional CE. You do a lot of cases, get some hands-on opportunities because we want to bring what we know to the general uh, practitioner. Dr. Hazard, thank you so much for coming on. It's always exciting talking with someone who's passionate about something in optometry and has a lot of positive things to think about the future. Um, so thank you so much for your enthusiasm and we can all get yeah, excited about right. dry eye. You don't hear that very often, right? <laughs>